You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. All right, so I do want to encourage you. I was, I've been working ahead, and uh, starting next week, not so much next week, but the week after, but it's always good practice. Uh, we're going to be in Job 3 next week, and uh, after that, we'll start tackling bigger chunks of, of the book of Job. So if you, if you read ahead, it's going to be a lot more beneficial to you, and you're going to get more out of it if you kind of know where we're going. Because once we start looking at three chapters at a time, it's, it's going to be hard to really get super specific in a, in a time span of an hour. But if you've read ahead, you're going you're gonna to grasp more. But today we're going to be in Job 1.13 through 2.10. And uh, tonight's the good stuff, I guess, because we're getting ready to move into poetry. But today we're still in narrative. We're still in the story. And uh, what we're going to see tonight is the major action that you find in the book of Job. And so if you ask someone on the street, I don't know, today... Um, you may not get a lot, but if you ask somebody on the street, you know, what do they know about the book of Job? What we're going to talk about tonight is what they know, um, the action, right? People like and remember the action. And so I kind of like to prefer to think about this section of, of the story as kind of the Job experiment, because Satan comes to God, he wants to put Job to the test, and God accepts, right? He takes on the challenge, and it's a challenge, in some sense it's a challenge, I mean, God's in control, so it's not that much of a challenge, but it's a challenge to see who's right. Satan, who thinks that Job's going to fail the experiment, and God, who knows that, jo- that Job's going to pass, right? And so before we get there, let's take a look back at what we've already covered, so to speak. And, you know, we, we've, if you look at Scripture as a whole, through all, all the different eras of time, each one, there's always a remnant, right? There's always a remnant of God-fearing people. No matter how difficult things get, there's always a remnant. Right? And regardless of what surrounds them, they continue to believe in the one true God. They trust in his word, and they, that includes the promise of a coming redeemer. They continue to worship no matter what the circumstance. And we've seen from the first chapter that Job is one of these men. He would be considered one of the remnant, right? Regardless of what happens, especially to him in this book, he continues to stay faithful. And he's described as one of the greatest of all the men of the East. We talked about how that really translates into the richest or the wealthiest of the men of the East. He's known for his wisdom. He's known for his righteousness, right? And three times in the first two chapters, he's described as being blameless and upright. That's how he's defined. God specifically defines him that way. It's not just what other men think. That's what God thinks. God tells Satan there's no other man like Job. He's unique. There's something different about him, right? And he's favored by God. And and being completely righteous, he serves as an example of an innocent sufferer. Like that's, that's one of the, the major points of the book is his life serves as an example of an innocent sufferer. So that shows us that, yeah, righteous people are going to suffer. And as believers, hopefully, it doesn't take very long for us to think, yeah, Jesus. I mean, he's the ultimate example. He was completely innocent, and yet he suffered even greater than Job, right? So Job serves as that example in the Old Testament for us. We also looked last week at Satan, right, and Satan's plan. So he's walking up and down the earth, he's observing men, and he's noticed Job. And he's aware of Job's godly characteristics, right? And Satan's plan, like we talked about last week, he wants to usurp God's creation, 
his purpose in creation. He wants to draw men away from worshiping God. He wants, he wants men to worship anything but God. We, we've got this misconception of Satan to where we think, well, he's, he wants us to worship him. Sure, I'm sure he would love that. But he really just wants us distracted and worshiping anything but the one true God. That's what he's after. And so it's conceivable, we don't read of this anywhere in Scripture, but it's very conceivable that Satan was not a big fan of Job because he was a stumbling block. Here Job is, a completely righteous man, and if you're a completely righteous man, you have an, a positive effect on your community, on your surroundings. And so if I'm Satan and I'm trying to distract and I'm trying to draw men away from God, Job is standing in the way of that. He's, he's harming my attempt to be successful at that plan. So it's possible that he looks at, looks at Job and he, and he has contempt for Job, right? Because he's a, he's a cog in the, in the wheel, so to speak. But we've got to remember who Satan is, right? I talked about last week about how we can't give him too much credit. And we're really good at doing that, right? Satan is just a creature, and ultimately he's puny compared to the Lord. He's a created being, unlike the one true God. So you can't give him too much credit or place too much emphasis on him. He does have an impact, right? But like I said last week, it's just a small part of the story. After we get done tonight, we're going to spend several more weeks in the book of Job, and you're never going to see a direct reference to Satan. And yet, if, if you asked... Who are the main characters in the book of Job? Satan's going to get a plug. But how much of a main character is he if he's only in one or two chapters? We can't give him too much attention. And we're really good at that. We also can't believe that Satan is, is the main cause of all the suffering in the world. Because that's not the truth. Satan, if allowed, and that's, that's a clause that you need to recognize and understand, if allowed... Right? Satan can't do it on his own, but if he, if he is allowed, God can use him as a tool. We're going to talk about that. God can use him as a tool to promote, to promote or bring about suffering. But he's not the sole cause of all the suffering in the world. A fallen world can take care of plenty of that on its own. Okay. So we see this interaction here, and, and God calls Satan attention to Job, and Satan begins to mock and insult God. So I told you last week that, that God kind of one-up Satan. So Satan's walking back and forth on the earth, and he comes before, and he's like getting ready to say something, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? Like before Satan can even finish the sentence or ask the question, God answers it for him. Yeah, I know what you're going to ask me. Have you thought about Job? And then Satan goes on to mock God and basically say, listen, if you took all he had, he'd curse you. The only reason that he's faithful is because of the things that you've given him and what you've done for him. So he challenges him to that test. If you just take things away, then he'll curse you. Right? And God says, no, he won't, but we can play your game anyway. So what Satan does is he puts both God's character, we lose sight of that, he puts God's character and Job's character on trial, not just Job. And, and there's two questions from these, these two tests that we're going to look at tonight. There's two questions that Satan poses to God. The first is, can God be loved for himself, simply for who he is, not for the things that 
you have, not the, th- the ways that he's blessed you, can God be loved just for himself, just for who he is? And the second question is, can a man hold on to God when there are no apparent benefits? Can a man hold on to God when there are no apparent benefits? Satan argues that the answers to both of those questions are no. And he also has to think in the back of his mind on some level that if I can get Job, you're right, I acknowledge what you said, God, that Job is unique. That he's upright and blameless and there's something different about him. But if I can get him to reject you, then the domino effect, the ripple, will be great. And now I'm cooking with fire. No pun intended. If I'm the devil, right? If I'm Satan. So he's trying to thwart God's plan of redemption. One guy got that joke. So he can thwart God's plan of redemption if he can get Job to curse God, right? So in Job 1.12, what we see and what we saw last week is that the experiment is on. God grants Satan the ability to afflict Job by means of those around him and his possessions, right? He says one thing, just don't spare his life, okay? So we're going to look at the, at, we're going to break this passage down into two parts and look at these two separate tests, right? We're going to start in 1.13 and go to the end of the chapter. And it says, One day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and reported, While the oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing nearby, the Sabians swooped down and took them away. They struck down the servants with a sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, God's fire fell from heaven. It burned the sheep and the servants and devoured them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. That messenger was still speaking when yet another came and reported. The Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported. Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on the young people so that they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job stood up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshipped, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Throughout all of this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. So that's the first test. And it begins in verse 13 with the phrase, One day. One day. This tells us that all of this calamity, all of the things that fell upon Job, took place in a short period of time. One day. A 24-hour period. Now, if you just think about your life and the things that you've experienced, we have a really hard time handling a tragic event. One. One bad thing happens to me today. And that word tragic, a lot of people define that in a lot of different ways. So... What I may think is tragic, you may think is not a big deal. But one thing happens to me today. I got a hard time dealing with that. And yet we see that Job has four things happen in a 24-hour period that I think we all could agree are tragic. In a 24-hour period, all four of these things happen to him. We're dealing with the beginning of the week, too. A lot of scholars think that we're looking at the beginning of the weekly cycle. Now, there's an argument. I don't know that I definitely agree 
But some tend to believe that, so this first day of the week is when Job would have offered the sacrifices that we looked at in, first, in chapter 1. And so Job offers these sacrifices. Let's say that's true. Job offers the sacrifices on the first day of the week. He's just finished, and wham, he gets hit with all of these calamities. He's just sacrificed. He's done his duty, right? And now all of these things happen. I tend to believe the opposite, that those sacrifices were daily. But either way, the chances are that he had just done the sacrifice to his God, to the one true creator God, and now he's struck with all these tragedies. So he gets this bad news immediately following his attempt to make peace with God. That's got to be a shock. I mean, in your human mind, whether it's right or not, you've got to believe that in that moment it's conceivable to believe but I just did what you asked me to do. I've just done what you've asked me to do, and this is what I get. And it's not, this is what I get. It's this and this and this and this is what I get. He's dealing with four huge things. So we read verses 14 and 15. Sabians swoop down. So these foreigners swoop down, killing servants and taking his oxen. All right. If you remember back to chapter 1, he's got a slew of servants, and these oxen represent all the oxen that he had. So we're talking about a thousand, a thousand oxen. This is a big deal. This wasn't two Sabians. It was an army of Sabians. If they had the ability to take a thousand oxen away, it's a big deal. That event alone would be a big deal. You're talking about a lot of net worth, gone right away. And while that is happening, the, the messenger gets away, the, one, the lone guy that escaped, and as he's finishing that up, here comes another guy in verse 16, another messenger. He says, the fire of God fell from heaven. It burned and killed all your sheep and more of your servants. So we're talking about 7,000 sheep and another large group of servants. It's a big deal. In, in Scripture, in a lot of places, the fire of God is generally thought to be lightning. Okay, So you get this huge thunderstorm that comes through and wipes out all of his sheep. Now, maybe it was lightning, maybe it wasn't, but whatever it was, we're talking about 7,000 sheep. It's something big. So all of his sheep are gone. So there's hit number two. Then we get to verse 17. Here comes another group of foreigners, the Chaldeans. They take some of his property, raid it, took his camels, and killed more servants. Again, as the last messenger's finishing up, he can't even finish the last tragedy, and here comes the next guy. So these hits are coming in rapid fire. Job doesn't think about Job. He doesn't even have time to process what's going on. His head's spinning. I mean, he, he, he's, when, when someone tells you of a tragic event, okay, if it is extremely personal and it hits you very hard, there is a moment of shock. Like, you can't process it. Like, immediately your thought process goes to, this can't be real. Like, can I please wake up? He's, he's experiencing that. And then it's another blow, and then another blow. In verse 18, we get the fourth one. It, like it couldn't get any worse. Here comes another messenger. He says, this great wind, and maybe it was a tornado, because it talks about it wiped this house like it had a specific path. It knocked out this house, right? It struck the house that your children were in. The house collapsed, and it killed your kids. So it's also what you see, it's interesting, that you have, it's like it escalates. It's bad, it gets a little more bad. It gets worse. Now it gets unimaginable. All my kids are dead. So you got all these things happen simultaneously. Job can't even wrap his head around it. He can't grasp it. 
He's got all this wealth. Remember, he's not just a rich guy. He's the wealthiest guy. He's got all of these things. And in an instant, it's gone. It's absolutely gone in an instant. So, so how does Job respond to that? Well, what we get is we get a model response. You're looking at the example. Like, what am I supposed to do in tragedy? Right here, Job lays out clearly, this is how you're supposed to react. It says in verse 20, there's three things that are outlined. He tore his robe, he shaved his head, and he worshipped. It says, then Job stood up, tore his robe, shaved his head, he fell to the ground and worshipped. So this, this act of tearing a robe is an act of deep grief. It's symbolic. It's like, this is what my heart is experiencing. I'm tearing my robe in two because my heart's been broken in two. He shaved his head. It was common during that time period. It's a sign of humility and submission before God. I'm nothing. I'm nothing. And you can imagine, after Job experiences what he just experienced, he definitely would feel like nothing. Job understood that he was under the hand of God. And he recognized where he stood in God's presence. And he fell to the ground and began to worship. So he didn't just grieve. But in that moment, as difficult as it would have been, he brought himself to a place of worship. And what's fascinating is that God, Job recognizes the sovereignty of God in all of those things. There's no mention of chance. There's no mention of what he could have done better to prevent it. I mean, imagine, imagine you in that situation. Let's just say tornado and let's just say your kids. Well, if I'd only had my weather radio on, if I'd have got my cell phone out and I would have called them, they would have known to get out of the house or they would have known to get in the basement or the cellar or wherever they needed to be. I mean, all these things would run through your mind of shoulda, coulda, woulda, what could I have done? How could that happen to me? The chances were the odds. None of that, none of that comes from Job. He recognizes that it's all from the hand of God. There's no mention of Satan. There's no mention of evil spirit. Well, it must have been the devil that did it. There's none of that. Job fully attributes all of these events to the hand of God. And we see that in verse 21. So when he falls down and worships, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When you get gut punched, and something that you never could imagine being taken away from you gets taken away, are you in a position to say, Blessed be the name of the Lord, because he's the one that's in control? And that's pretty remarkable. In that kind of situation, it would be totally understandable Nobody in here would think it was acceptable, but you totally would think, I can see how that could happen, if he cursed God in that very moment, right? And that's what Satan hedged his bet on. That's what Satan told God. If you just take his stuff away, he's going to curse you. But what Job did was stand strong in his faith. Not, not only, and notice, notice, notice this key point. Satan says, if you take his stuff away, he'll curse you. Job proves that that's not the case. But he proved way more than that. He didn't just not curse God. He worshipped him. He worshipped him in that moment. So regardless of, of the difficulty that fell upon him, he didn't blame God. He didn't curse God. Instead, he worshipped God. He did the exact opposite of what Satan said he would do. Can you imagine? I mean, it's like the cartoon. If You, you see steam coming out of Satan's ears as he's watching this. Like, I cannot believe 
that he didn't curse him. And now he's got the, he's got the audacity to worship him after that. So Satan's efforts weren't defeated. They were soundly defeated. It was a rout. Then we get to the second test. In 2, 1 through 10, it says, One day the sons of God came again to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with him to present himself before the Lord. The Lord asked Satan, Where have you come from? From roaming through the earth. Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him. A man of perfect integrity, who fears God and turns away from evil. He still retains his integrity, even though you incited me against him to destroy him for no good reason. Skin for skin, Satan answered the Lord. A man will give up everything he owns in exchange for his life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord said to Satan, he is in your power, only spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence and infected Job with terrible boils from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. You speak as a foolish woman speaks, he told her. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? Throughout all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. At the beginning of the chapter, and in this second test, we've got another meeting of the heavenly host. It's nearly parallel to the same meeting that we had in chapter 1. The only difference is God's jabs at Satan. If, if you heard me as I was reading that, I was chuckling. It's awful hard not to read that without chuckling a little bit because you can just sense... I mean, if you follow the action of what's going on, right, and we get the same meeting, it's like round two, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> I mean, have you considered Job? <laughs> I mean, you can see him laughing in his face, like, have you considered Job? And, and Satan's just stewing, like, he has to be just stewing in that moment, like, whoa. And then he throws the other jab. The only difference in, in this little section of Scripture between the first meeting and the second is God says, oh, and by the way, he still has his integrity. <laughs> I mean, that's a jab. That's a jab. And note, but notice that Satan doesn't take it lying down, right? He's persistent, and he demands another test. He, the best example that I can give you is he's like a kid on the playground that lost the first game. And he's, all of a sudden, he wants to change the rules, right? Everybody's played with that kid on the playground. Now you want to change the rules, right? You're going to change the rules and do whatever you can so that you can win. That's what Satan's doing here. And he proposes a change in the rules because he thinks that if he changes the rules, it's going to work out better for him. Satan says, skin for skin, right? That's an interesting phrase. And it, what he's doing is he's arguing the point that this first test, all right, I give you the first test, but, but you didn't go far enough. We didn't go far enough. So it wasn't really a true test. Like you can call it a test, but it wasn't really a true test because we didn't go far enough. He says a man will sacrifice the skin of another in order to keep his own skin. 
So what he's saying is, listen, God, he didn't curse you at the loss of his livestock or the death of his servants or the death of his children only because he wanted to preserve his own life because he knew that if he had cursed you in that moment that you would have killed him. So he kept his mouth shut, not because he's righteous, not because he's upright and blameless like you claim he is. He kept his mouth shut because he wanted to live. So God says, I mean, that's not the truth, but whatever. We'll play your game. So he welcomes the challenge. He grants Satan permission to afflict Job with one stipulation. You can't kill him. So do whatever you want to do. You're not going to win this game. Just don't kill him. So in verse 7 and 8, we're given a picture of Job's condition. Right? It says, So Satan left the Lord's presence and infected Job with terrible boils from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself while he sat among the ashes. So he's in pain, he's itching, he can't stop it. He's doing whatever he can to stop it. He's in complete agony. Now, we don't get enough information about what exactly, you know, what has Job been afflicted with. We don't know. Some scholars tend to believe that he's dealing with a severe bout of leprosy. Who knows? It doesn't matter. All we need to know is that he's in pain, right? He's uncomfortable. He's in agony. He's trying to relieve himself any way possible. Right? I mean, think about all the ways that you could try to relieve yourself in a situation, like breaking a piece of pottery in your house and trying to scratch yourself with it. I mean, it's last resort, man. Last resort. Not only do we see that, but we also see that he's sitting in the middle of a garbage dump. It says he sat among the ashes. And so that appears to indicate that he would be sitting in what we consider the landfill. So he's Outside of the city, whatever type of city structure he was living in, more than likely he's outside of the city where all the garbage was taken, right? And it's the indication of one of two things. One, he was either outcast by the people, right? And if it was something like leprosy, you could see how that would happen, like get out of here before we get it too. So he's outcast, or he simply quarantined himself, right? He left the city on his own accord. But it's possible that Job had the thought that after all this has happened to me, I'm nothing more than garbage myself, so I might as well go sit with the garbage because apparently that's where I belong. Then, when you think it couldn't get any worse, right? What in the world could possibly happen to me now? It gets worse. That's, that's a lesson that we should learn. Even when you think it can't get worse, it can always get worse. But what happens is the one relationship, the one human relationship that Job has left, now it's broken. Job's wife comes up to him and calls on him to curse God. He says all of these things are no doubt result of the hand of God, and you still hold on to your integrity. She thinks that what, what good has that done you? What good is your integrity? It's not worth a whole lot, because obviously you're still in this situation. So what's the point? You've been mistreated by God. All hope is lost as far as she's concerned. There's no way out of this. You've lost everything you possibly could have. Do you know, imagine if all of your retirement income was gone. Now imagine you're 63, and you're set to retire at 65. It's all gone. It's almost as if in that moment his wife is saying, it took you 
30 years plus to build that, you ain't getting it back. Like, there's no fixing this. There is no hope. There's no restoration coming. She says, what you need to do is you just need to curse God and die. And really, in effect, what she's saying, that's easy to get lost, I think, in English translation, is she's saying, you just need to curse God so he'll kill you. That's what you need to do, because it's all but over. So why are you clinging to anything? Curse God so he'll just kill you and get this over with. Because she's been afflicted too, right? She doesn't want to deal with this misery anymore. Now i got this miserable old man sitting in the middle of a garbage dump embarrassing me. Just curse God and die. It's interesting, though, that his own wife, while she doesn't know it, she's enticing Job to do exactly what Satan wants him to do. So what we find is Job is by himself in the midst of the greatest difficulty of his life. He's all by himself. But how does he respond? Well, again, his second response is not quite as eloquent or as beautiful as his first response, but it's just as righteous. So he rejects the counsel of his wife. He labels it as foolishness, right? You're talking like a fool. Now, maybe if you want to give her the benefit of the doubt, maybe she's just acting emotionally, Right when she, re- But Job rebukes her either way. He says, you're talking like one who doesn't have the ability to discern anything, and you're thinking like a fool would think. Why don't you think before you speak? That's basically what he's saying to her. She thinks that God has, mis- has mistreated both of them. But really, she's talking to him. God has mistreated you. But Job doesn't see it that way. Job argues... Well, should we accept only the good things from God, but not the bad things from God? And here's, what, again, what's remarkable. Job has no clue what's going on behind the scenes. He doesn't know. He doesn't have the information that you have and I have. Right? But even in that, his argument is directly opposite to the argument that Satan has made. Right? God says, you take his stuff away. I mean, Satan says, you take his stuff away, God, and he'll curse you. Didn't happen. Okay, we didn't go far enough. If you, if you inflict him, he'll curse you. But Job proves the exact opposite. He maintains his integrity, he maintains his righteousness, and he continues to worship God and thank God for the blessings and the difficulties that come upon his life, even in the most imaginable, situ- unimaginable circumstances that you could possibly conceive. Right? And what he proves is a man can't be fickle with God. You can't be fickle with God. You're not in a position to be fickle with God. Job has a high regard for the sovereignty of God and makes it clear through both of these tests. And he passes with flying colors. He doesn't curse or sin in either test, in either situation. Right? So, so what, is, what do these two tests have to do with you? How can these two tests be an example for you in living your own life when you deal with tragedy and difficulty? What can we learn from these things? Well, the first thing is we see some uh, explanation or we get some understanding of the ability and the control that Satan can have, okay? So it's clearly seen from these two tests that Satan has the authority to influence some things. He can influence natural events to some extent, right? He's got some, somehow, some way, he's, he's controlled lightning in a tornado, a high wind, fire from heaven, Okay, he's controlled the minds of ungodly men. All right, you got these Sabians that have done what they've done, the Chaldeans that have done what they've done. Satan has some kind of influence there over those men, 
He's got the ability to influence physical illness, right? If God allows him to, that's the big caveat there. In Ephesians 2, 2, Satan's called the prince of the power of the air. And in John 12, 31, Jesus references Satan as the ruler of this world, right? He's described in scripture as having great wisdom. And he can use that wisdom to control these natural processes of the earth, like the fire and the wind. He also is a great influencer, like we mentioned. He can coerce men into doing what he wants them to do, right? And even if we look in our culture today, we don't have to look very far, right? Satan doesn't have to, he doesn't have to directly speak to individuals. But he can use things, the things of this world, to distract individuals. And if you don't believe that, just turn on the television. Just turn on the television or hop on the Internet. I mean, it doesn't take a whole lot to distract people. Side note, I've learned in my life, he can use good things. Because if good things take the place of great things, then the Christian can be distracted from what really matters. So, for example, is, uh, is being good to my kids a good thing? Absolutely. But if my kids take the, the place in my life where God should be, then that good thing becomes a bad thing. And, and Satan can use all these things that would be deemed by society as a positive thing to be a distraction from the great thing. Again, all of these things showcase that influence can have, or Satan can have some influence, right? But you can't credit him with too much because Satan can do nothing without God's approval, right? And there are plenty of things in this fallen world that can handle a lot of things on their own. You also have to understand, and it's all throughout Scripture, you're responsible for your own behavior and choices. So you look at these Sabians and these Chaldeans as two examples. They didn't get off the hook. like They were responsible for what they did. They didn't get off the hook because, well, Satan told me to do it. Like That's, that's not an excuse. You know, They still did what they did. They still rated what they rated. They're responsible for their own actions. Just like I'm responsible and you're responsible for your own actions. The second thing we see is just the hand of God. Right? All of this, this is a difficult concept maybe for some people to wrap their head around. All that happened in this section of Scripture came as a direct result of the hand of God. Job didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. He only saw the hand of God. And you can't, you can't dismiss that. Maybe that makes you uncomfortable, but you can't dismiss it. Because in, in chapter 2, verse 3, listen to what God says. He says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. He still retains his integrity. Listen, even though you incited me against him to destroy him for no good reason. Even though you incited me against him. So where did all these things come from? They came from the hand of God. What God did was use Satan as a tool. Satan was the method by which Job was afflicted. But it didn't happen without the approval and authority of God. So the, like Job recognized, the good and the bad came from God. Because without his authority and his approval, it could never happen. So what these tests ought to show us is that God is completely sovereign and he's in control of all things. 
It's God alone that gives. It's God alone that takes away. And if, if what we do, so Job's wife comes at him and says, you should curse God and die. And Job says, well, what are we supposed to do? Just take the good things and not the bad? Because he's given them all to us. And if we follow her advice, if that's what we do, and we see God as only the giver of what we define as good, then what we do is we weaken our understanding of who God is. And in the same process, we elevate ourselves. That's not what we're called to be. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to recognize that God is above all. That includes you and that includes me. He's in complete control of the good and the bad. And who are we to say that anything that God does is bad? He's the one that's in control. He's a creator. I'm the created. Period. End of story. That comes to number three, which is our position. Job understands his whole reaction proves that he understands his true position. I mentioned this last week because I got ahead of myself. But we're in no position to barter with God. You're in no position to barter with God. God, I promise I'll do this, this, and this if you'll just come through here. You're in no position to do that. Bad things can and do happen to righteous people. Satan, listen, Satan is the one that makes the claim that all this righteous behavior is only an effort to gain your favor. So why would we live in a way that confirms that argument? I'm not in a position to barter with God. I'm not the one that states the terms. He states the terms. We don't get to define good. We don't get to make deals with God. We don't get to demand expectations from God. He's the creator. We're the created. Our position is one of submission. That's a dirty word. Nobody likes to hear that. But our role is a position of submission. And if we take up any other position, what we do is we reject the words of Paul in Romans 12, 3, when he said, listen, dummy. He said, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Here's what, here's what, okay. I'm going way off track here. I'm a professional wrestling fan. The Rock would always look at people and he would say, know your role and shut your mouth. <laughs> right? That's what God's saying. I mean, that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, know your role and shut your mouth. Don't put yourself in a position to where you think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Know who you are. God's a creator and you're the created. You don't get to state the terms. Know your role. Number four, are you prepared to stand and worship? Job's reaction to his losses is the model example. How a believer should handle the trials and travesties that you have to deal with in your own life. He's broken and he mourned, but he continued to trust God and worship him. Here's the key. Even when he had to do it alone. Even when he had to do it alone. Even when his wife didn't want to participate. He remained steadfast. And that should be a reminder to us about the individuality of our faith. Right? The, don't get this confused. The Christian life was meant and designed to be lived in community. Okay? But I also have to recognize that my own salvation is determined by my response to Christ. Period. End of story. The faith or the lack of faith of others that are in my life has no bearing on my eternal fate. None. So, if all these people next to me fall away, and I fall away, and we get to the last day, I don't, I don't, it's not an option for me to go, yeah, but they did it too. Like, it's, it doesn't matter. 
We have to be prepared as individuals to stand and worship alone just like Job did. So as families, are we preparing our children as best as possible and equipping them to be able to do the same thing, to be able to stand alone? And Do you have the ability to plant your flag and not budge? Because there's going to be a lot of people pushing and shoving and tempting you to go a different direction. And it's only going to get worse. You have to have the ability to plant your flag. The last thing is true blessing. Job didn't worship God for the side effects of prosperity. Right? No doubt he was grateful for all the ways that God had blessed him. But he understood where the true blessing came from. Luke twelve fifteen says, A man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. Right? When all that stuff got taken away, it had to hurt. It had to hurt. Look, Job, we don't, we don't know a lot of, or much of anything about the backstory. But everything that Job had, I'm pretty confident it wasn't inherited. Like he busted his tail. Like you don't have a thousand ox without working your tail off. So he, he had put the work in, but he had been blessed by God. So when it's all taken away, it's going to sting. It's going to sting. I had a lot of sweat and a lot of hours and all that. You know, I'd worked so hard with my children. I had loved my children, and now it's just taken away. So it stung. But he understood where his true blessing was, and that was his relationship with God. All things belong to God to be given and taken back without wrong. It wasn't wrong for God to take those away. They were his. He's the sovereign ruler over all. And not only did Job recognize that, but he rejoiced in it. His faith was so strong that both the bad and the good in his life was received as the hand of God. And as that, what's interesting about that is if you can get to that place, then every experience of your life, just like every experience of Job's life, was an occasion for blessing. That's the definition of trust. It's real easy. I tell players all the time, anybody can play well on a good day. Right? The pitcher that's feeling it, he's going to throw good. But when he doesn't have one pitch and when he doesn't feel very good, can he still win a baseball game? That's what a really good player does. And if I really trust God, anybody can trust God when things are good. But when it, can, I, can I trust God enough that even when things are not going the way I want them to go, that I don't, I don't waver at all? That's the definition of trust. And that's what Job models. So do we as believers, do we recognize Christ as our only true blessing and all that is worthy of our worship? Yeah, we should be grateful for the ways that God blesses us. But we have to be careful not to redirect our gratefulness into the worship of the things that he gives us as opposed to the giver of those things. That's where we get Paul, in his own example in his life, in Philippians 3.8, where he says, I count it all as loss. It's all garbage. I mean, that's the translation. It's all garbage. Everything is not worth anything except for knowing Christ. He says, I don't care how highly I get blessed or how lowly I get kicked. All of it's trash outside of knowing Jesus. So can, do we have the ability to stand just like Job did and realize that a man may stand before God stripped of everything that life has given him and still lack nothing. If you're going to highlight or underline anything in that whole stack of notes there, that's the one thing that you need before your face all week.
Can we stand as Job did and realize that a man may stand before God stripped of everything that life is giving him and still like nothing? Because all that really matters is knowing God. So we had two questions. Satan posed two questions. Can God be loved for himself simply for who he is? And can a man hold on to God when no apparent benefits are present? Satan argued that those answers were no. But the life of Job proved that those answers can and they should be yes. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what does our life say about those two questions? Does my life demonstrate that the answers to those questions are no or that they're yes? There's no, we don't get an excuse. We don't get a yeah, but. Because Job's proved that the answers can be yes. That's the example that we're to follow. So regardless of the highs, regardless of the lows, I'm called to recognize that God's in complete control and that he's worthy of being worshipped. And if I completely trust in him, like put your trust in Christ, okay, if you really put your trust there, then you have the ability to do that, to worship in the lowest moments. So we're going to see Job's going to hit some lows in the coming weeks, and he's going to take some hits from his friends or so-called friends. And we're going to walk through all of that. You're going to see Job at about his lowest point in chapter 3. So if you're going to read ahead for next week, we're going to look at chapter 3 and only chapter 3. It's a tough read. But Job's going to be about as honest as a man can be, and we're going to know his heart. But in all of this, throughout all of this, Job did not sin. And throughout all of this, right, you're living, you're this. That's what you're living. You're living, you're this. And can the same be said about you throughout all of this? You didn't sin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the example of Job, uh, the model of Job. Uh, Just something to see that can encourage us that it's possible and can motivate us to live in a way that that we can fit that mold as well. As difficult as it may be, Lord, regardless of the highs that you bring us, even just this week ahead, the highs that you're going to give us this week ahead and the lows that you're going to give us, can we worship you and praise your name in all of it? Lord, I pray that we would be a set-apart people, that the people of this church, as we go out into the community this week, that there's something different about us, and that we recognize that as people are looking at us, what's going to stand out is our response in the lows. Because everybody's jubilant and easy to get along with in the highs. But how do we respond in the lows? Do we respond like everybody else? Or can people look at us and know that things are different? Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith and the strength and the boldness and the courage to act in a way that would bring glory and honor to you regardless of the difficulties that we face. That we would be a people set apart that would draw people to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.